Right, welcome to episode 59 of the Solid 60. It's been a while, I'm afraid. Uh, probably the longest gap that I've had. So I thought, I've got things to do today, but I've got to push all that aside and just get something on tape, as it were. And it's been a quite a busy few weeks. So let's try and get into that and then read an interesting article or something. Because you know, I know you love it. Let's go, what is it, the 28th of July. So yeah, it's been a few weeks. 2019 interesting year as well hopefully only one more year and a bit of you know trump in the white house and unfortunately we're with our current prime minister for a few more years i don't know what's going on in this country we have to rely on queensland to get their heads in gear come through for us next time because yeah it's it's um things are just gradually getting worse and the same now in the uk apparently with boris johnson in charge and appointing a whole bunch of idiots to his cabinet, apparently. I've only skimmed the news, but yeah, it's not looking good. So we're due for a massive U-turn at some point. Hopefully all this sort of shenanigans at the top is only kind of making it a bit rough around the edges. It's not steering us completely off a cliff, fingers crossed. Anyway, back to me, the important stuff, and what happened? I was going well with cookers, I thought, until I came in, I think it was only a few days after the last recording, and they're like, yeah, no, you're not getting along well with the other drivers. They don't think you could do their job. And uh, we're just going to have to let you go. So that was a bit of a rude shock, considering that I'd done two or three shifts by myself, but completely fine, considering I didn't know any of the areas that they sent me out to on the weekend. And I thought I did pretty well, and I know I could do that job blindfolded other than the driving, of course. So, yeah, that was frustrating because I've got a... I know it's a conspiracy theory, but... I've got a slight inkling that most of them just didn't want to lose their overtime because that's how you make a shit ton of money in that job. Like I was pulling in nearly two grand a week uh, just because of the 15 hour day. So that was nice, but you don't have a life. So it's a real trade off there. You're doing, you know, you're going there in the dark at five, four in the morning sometimes and you're not leaving till at least six, seven usually. So that's, yeah, you're not really doing much else. And if you do just put your hand up for Saturdays as well, then that's basically your life, is driving around and picking up really smelly, dirty oil and you're getting it all over you and it doesn't get out of your clothes. And, you know, you're doing 40-something sites in a day and each one's like, well, most of them are really hard to get to using multiple elevators and trying to back in really crowded docks. And Yeah, so it was a nightmare, but... I thought I could handle it, and uh, I did get along with a couple of the drivers, but there was just one or two that I think threw me under the bus for not the most honest reasons, I thought. so. And yeah, I don't think I was given a fair chance, but there you go. I had had that one stuff up in my first cup, maybe the first week, I backed into a car. Apparently they never got uh, chased it up, either the, the owner of the car, so that was nice, but yeah, it's still, I don't know. Every other day, someone else was crashing their truck, so that didn't seem to be a big issue for them. And and I think, in retrospect, that's maybe something to do with the amount of hours they're doing. So, yeah, because I'm at a new place. Pretty much the same day they let me go, I had three interviews and shook hands at one of them to just like, all right, let's see how we go, and started the next day. And that's delivering glass. And again, I've had two days in a row where some glass was dropped, I've really got to watch those clamps. So I'm learning all over again, a whole new industry. And I think I'm going to be okay now. They're a lot more easy going. The hours aren't as long, unfortunately. So once it kicks into gear and I've passed probation, because I'm, I'm pretty confident that's going to happen this time, 
Uh, I might keep an eye out for something with more hours. But then again, now uh, once I've done the six weeks of this guy that's on holiday, and he's got a very small area, it's just this out west in Sydney, and you know, usually back after seven or eight hours. So at the end of the week, I'm not going to be pulling home a huge amount. But once I'm back on my own, he comes back from holidays, I'll be doing more of the uh, longer runs. So they're more like 10 to 12 hours. So that's all right. So yeah, fingers crossed that goes well. Otherwise, I did Smash. I'm not sure I've talked about that yet since the last podcast. I know I did a little bit on Banana Split. We did a bit of a review on that last week, and I finally got that online. So that's exciting. Oh yeah, we got approved for the house. So what's more of a granny flat next door. And I'm looking forward to moving everything into there. The only problem is they want to do the key handover on a Tuesday, which is a bit odd. Uh, I think she just wants to get me out of the house, uh, the, the real estate agent, Emma, as soon as it's ready to go, which makes sense. They want, they don't want money just going down the drain. So I'll have to pay for both places, I think probably up to the weekend, um, so I can move everything over. So that's a little exy, but thankfully I've still got a few um, dollars put aside. Oh yeah, and the other hassle was I have to find an electrician and pay for it myself to get the NBN cable pulled all the way from the front room of the main house, around it, the entire house, to the granny flat. So that's going to be interesting and hopefully not too expensive. They're $100 an hour, but it should only be a two or three hour job. So yeah, that's, that's fairly doable. And yeah, because I can't go without the internet. I don't know how the bogans that used to live there did. Uh, clearly that's not something that is a big part of their lives. Fair enough. They had about, I think it was four or five cases of beer still sitting there, undrunk. And, and then about, I don't know, 200 cases leftovers in the backyard. So it did take them a while to clean up. They've got carpet in there now. Hopefully the shower works fine. That's a big thing for me, <laughs> considering the place here. As nice as it is, as it is to have all this room, uh, yeah, the shower's a bit of a mess. Uh, it's unfixable. The tiles are falling off. There's mold like underneath the mold, like you can't even, there's only so much you can do. The main thing is the pressure that comes out like a leaky old tap. So it's just useless and forward to something a bit more fresh and a bit of power to wash off the daily grime. So and thankfully with the new job, I'm not really getting that bad. Like the one time I dropped some glass on a roundabout and I had to jump off and spend an hour trying to sweep it off in between traffic. Eventually some cops turned up to help out. And they were nice enough not to interrogate me and, and just they blocked a lane and I got it done. And no ticket or anything. So it was, yeah, embarrassing enough just to have to try and explain it to the boss. that Yeah, that clamp that had been on it. And then I took off to bring some glass off it for someone else, leaving, I, don't, I think it was like five panels for another customer. Might have forgot to replace the clamp. So that's the problem. When you've got two or three customers worth of glass sitting under one clamp, you've got to remember to replace those clamps once you've taken a little bit off. So you'd think it would be pretty fucking common sense thing to do. But yeah, when you're running around and you're in a bit of a hurry, things can just get missed. I know I checked it, but clearly something was loose. I don't know. I, I just, and the next day I barely moved and it happened again, leaving a driveway. Thankfully there was guys there to help me out this time. I was like, what is going on? I truly just wanted to bury myself in a hole, leaving nothing but a little finger sticking out of the ground. Like, I'm done. This is it. I'm out. Like, it was ridiculous. Um, but thankfully, the next two days went fine. And from now on, yeah, I'm going to be on the ball. So that's it. Uh, back to Smash. Had a great time. I was really happy to be invited to a 
special dinner to thank the guests and it was like a networking dinner at the hotel i think it was the i can't remember if it was the saturday or the sunday night but it was just really nice to meet a bunch of exhibitors there was a few people from not blizzard the people behind ooh, some video game company and they were super cool there was the people that organized gamma which is on a week from now and i was thinking about going it's a four-hour drive you know if you take your time maybe three and a half the way i push it but it's just two days and i've got to get back to start early on monday and i don't know i'm not really sure that's going to work um hoping to see that's kind of it falls on the weekend that i see lewis so yeah that's going to be it's, it's going to be something i have to decide in the next few days and i'm pretty sure i could hit them up and maybe get a menu pass and that would help a little bit but mainly it's just to go and and, and check it out and see what i have been missing um with the act crowd and i know there's a bunch of friends going at least you know top tier cosplayers that i've got in touch with online and met once or twice and mainly Henchwench i've met a few times and, and she's really cool always a little busy at cons to really have a decent interaction with but i have been to her place and she did help me out a lot with the fallout gear well, back when she lived in the blue mountains now they've moved to adelaide her and um oren who she met i think only a year or two ago and does scrap shop props i really have to check that one i did close facebook <laughs> so i wouldn't be too distracted because the screen's right in front of me um but i'm gonna have to confirm that because i did mention him on the banana split podcast and i want to confirm that is the name of his page and it definitely is scrap shop props that guy knows what he's doing he's done an amazing doom suit of armor which looks straight out of the video game it's a, the new doom game i haven't played actually yet um what have i been watching future man i finally finished season one i bought it randomly the other day at jb when they were doing a sale and it's just one of the coolest funniest craziest things i've seen in a long time lots of cosplay inspiration there too some really easy ones i could do and it's one of those ones which i think has gone under the radar for a lot of people so i want to put the name out there if possible I'm definitely going to make Jaden watch it, my other fellow Banana Split host, and uh, I've got a feeling he'll like it, and pretty much anyone I know will love it, so I've just got to spread the word. Just there's a, there's a costume he has right at the beginning as a janitor, where it's just a Dickies overalls. He's got the flood of a name on there, so that's kind of why he calls him Future Man, and he's got the laboratory brand, so it wouldn't be impossible to do that. Compared to, say, the General Talos suit I want to do, which I know is going to set me back a few grand, and I've got to see what the average wage is coming in and how I go with the slightly higher rent from now on before I start making big investments like that. Like with the Fallout suit, that was over five grand and I never, I never wear it. And I know with General Talos that requires a few hours putting makeup on. So how often am I going to arrange that? Uh, still, it's, it's, it's something I want to do. And after watching Spider-Man Far From Home, it just reinforced that that character is going to be around for a while. So... Cause, and I loved the, everything he did, all the choices that the actor made, Ben Mendelsohn. So really hoping to see more of him in the MCU. And yeah, so Phase 4 is announced. There's lots of cool movies on the horizon. Obviously Black Widow in May next year. So just under a year from now, it's going to kick it off and we'll go from there. And it's going to be exploring all the fallout from um, Endgame and some new uh, stuff on the horizon like uh, the multiverse. It's going to really shake things up. So kind of excited to see how all that goes. Next week, I'll be watching, hopefully, uh, Hobbs and Shaw, the Fast and Furious spin-off with The Rock and uh, Jason Statham. They really kind of came in and just, it almost feels like they stole the franchise a little bit from Vin Diesel and everyone else. But apparently there was some bad blood between Vin and The Rock and a few others. Uh, I think 
Tyson or whatever his name is had some beef with with one of them and it just got very messy so hopefully by the time they end up doing nine um, all that's cleared up and they put together something really cool I'm already getting notifications and having to click on them because I am addicted okay well that's that explains that there was a story here which I might read about a mass brawl on a British cruise ship because that's what the British love to do so much basically uh, I had lived there for a few years and that is something you see um, fairly often weirdly if you hang around bars on almost any night they're all drinking all the time and yeah fights are fairly common especially in more of the outlying cities but yeah this was on a cruise ship which you could say compares to a small city it's one of those really big ones and just as they were I think a day from coming back to port someone turned up at the dinner dressed as a clown so this upset one of their party because they'd specifically booked a cruise with no fancy dress and seeing the clown led to a violent confrontation so I love stories like that like you just have to be there a detail like that needs unpacking because what the fuck is going on and yeah apparently a whole bunch of people uh, got put in the brig or whatever their version of that is locked in their cabins until they got back to port because there was weapons involved ambulances were somehow brought to the ship I guess by helicopter and um, well, you know an ambulance crew paramedics and all that so yeah it got pretty out of hand because they don't fuck around when they do mass brawls even just off the coast of England so that was kind of funny uh, but I did want to read like a normal article as well let's jump over to the internet explorer which I rarely use I, I pretty much use it to upload my podcast so that's I've got it logged into the Omni Studio which and it looks like I can just create new podcasts like I could just go and look I've got one there set up tales from the short side which I do eventually when I find time want to create some content for but for now I'll just stick to the two but there was an article here about the 32nd Great Endeavour Rally which is a long drive for a lot of people I'm not sure if it's telling me how many but at, at this point it's set to raise $350,000 for the Endeavour Foundation, which is a charity to support people with intellectual disabilities. I could get some help from them. The funds will go towards virtual reality technology so people can practice everyday tasks in a safe environment before real life. Well, that sounds cool. That's very uh, forward-looking. So there's 56 decked-out cars with all sorts of uh, crazy designs on them. Hopefully the cops went easy on them and didn't just issue mass defects because um, there's a couple of photos there's a falcon there with a giant silver truck style pipe coming out of it uh, lots of defectable <laughs> modifications that I can see just at a glance yeah so hopefully because it's for a good cause they are and they're all going in a pack and I'm sure behaving themselves and they let them slide on a few of those details the rally travels through rough terrain many of the more experienced people taking part said they had been known to tow cars back from remote regions so you know obviously again it helps to go in a convoy apparently the australian army joined it so the issues shouldn't have been very long-lived they've got a couple of those mercedes uh, g-wagons cruising around with their six wheels so that's pretty hard to stop those things uh, on a trade side we're providing maintenance and recovery support and it gives us a really good opportunity to test our skills that was lieutenant ben burton so good on him army aren't all bad they do some pretty cool stuff there's a pajero there uh, with a giant chicken on the top of it it looks like the one from family guy so yeah love to see anything a little bit different i remember walking through the city the other day and seeing was a guy dressed as a horse was it a dinosaur it was one of those raptor suits that's right it was one of those uh dinosaur inflatable suits 
just sitting there playing some drums and he was pretty good at the drums so I thought I'm gonna throw some change in his little like an open guitar case but there was no guitar but why not God knows what he put in there and how he got all those drums around but you know it was good to see something a little quirky out there and you have to reward it there's another falcon here the peanut family and they've got a giant peanut wearing a top hat and a monocle on the top of the car so yeah just it's like car cosplay and a bit more intense than the stuff you see at smash they have something called itasha which is basically a bunch of cars parked on a roof covered in anime vinyl wrap some of it doesn't work so well i think it has to really match the car but there was a few good examples and if you want to see them just jump on beyond cosplay go to the album section and check out smash the b-roll because it's got all the stuff that's like not people in cosplay basically so the cars the stalls the crowds some of the artwork and things like that because uh, i really thought you know a lot of people i think 99 percent of the traffic is people looking for themselves or their friends in cosplay so i decided to put all of that in one album and that's a pretty big one considering i was only there for maybe half the sunday and i had to borrow a camera and i went to a lot of panels and did the interview with again <laughs> It's got that name. I think it's Mids, Mizushima Seiji. And I did wait around. I was trying to get another interview with the voice actor for Chun-Li. And that didn't uh, go to plan. Apparently she ran over time. But yeah, maybe next year. And I think they felt bad about that. And that's why I got the invite to the dinner. Where I met the people from not just Gamacon. But also a lady and a gentleman who run something down in Wollongong. Or not even further than that. It's like Berry. And it's like a superhero charity thing. So I don't know where to look for that. They gave me their cards. It's not until the end of the year. Shoalhaven Superheroes. Yeah, that's it. And so I'm going to be checking that out, hopefully. It's, it's a long drive as well. but And they do it a little bit out of the way. It's like something that's on right now in somewhere called Wilberforce, which is basically a long way up north of Sydney. Well, let's say an hour from anywhere. Decent. And there's no real public transport to speak of other than, I think, a small bus they were talking about. But I've seen a couple of photos come out of it. Looks all right. There's a bunch of LARPers. There's the Roman reenactors. Basically, it looks like a good time. It's small, but they've, you know, they've got a few stalls. There's a couple of people running around in costume and good for them. They only had the cosplay comp on the Saturday, apparently. Not sure how I feel about that. But yeah, my man Peter Stein is there checking it out so i'll get the verdict from him because i'm not sure i'll make it there today that's it's just a bit of a hike yeah to be honest it looks kind of like it's in its infancy and it's going to grow hopefully and it'll get bigger and, and worth heading out there once it's got enough of a um critical mass of people that know about it and can get there and do their thing and to be fair it's steampunk focused and steampunk isn't really a big there's a movie i think it's called hugo that's steampunk based a couple of other lady mechanica it's a steampunk comic there's a little bit of media that uses the genre but there's nothing really that's captured my heart so until they do that like cyberpunk for example you've got blade runner you've got ghost so many animes akira ghost in the shell um battle angel alito that all sort of live in that world including the rpgs that they've had and it's just that if they somehow could do a cyberpunk fest i, I don't know how that would work because it'd be really expensive to pull it off in any decent way but that would be, I'd be all over that, like white on rice. But for now, let's go to, I've got a bunch of articles sitting here. I'm not really adding to them at least, but there's still a few to get through. There's a couple of links here, which I don't need to read out. There's one where I've been meaning to listen to it. It's called Adventures of God. And that's quite funny. 
There's only, was well, a shit ton of episodes apparently. I can't tell how long they are just from looking at this, but it's, it's an audio thing. Uh, in this slice of life, you'll meet God, visit heaven, and learn what goes on behind the pearly gates. It isn't the way the good book describes it. It's a pretty unhealthy work environment, what with God's ginormous, fragile ego and heavy drinking problem. The good news is that while heaven is a lot less holy than expected, it's much more hilarious too. So that sounds like one of those silly comedies. I don't know where I found it, but, you know, hopefully it's a bit of fun. Sounds a weirdly a lot like that Steve Buscemi show they did on Stan. I can't remember the name of that. That was a short run, but it was, it was quite cute. Um, but the next one is an article that I can read, and it's been sitting here for quite a while. Actually, it was written on the 23rd of November 2008, so you could say it's a little out of date, and it's kind of interesting to compare where they thought things would go compared to where they did, because it is about the nature of media and where it is at at the time. Let's compare what Clive Thompson was thinking in that, say, it's well over 10 years ago, to where we ended up with Netflix. And that's it. That's going to be your podcast. So give me Napoleon Dynamite Problem. That's what's driving Len Batoni crazy. Batoni is a 51-year-old semi-retired computer scientist who lives an hour outside Pittsburgh. In the spring of 2007, his sister-in-law emailed him an intriguing bit of news. Netflix, the web-based DVD rental company, so that's showing its age, this article, was holding a contest to try and improve Cinematch. Its recommendation engine, the prize, $1 million. Cinematch is a bit of software embedded in the Netflix website that analyzes each customer's movie viewing habits and recommends other movies that the customer might enjoy. Did you like the legal thriller, The Firm? Well, maybe you'd like Michael Clayton, or perhaps A Few Good Men. The Netflix prize goes to anyone who can make Cinematch's predictions 10% more accurate. $1 million might sound like an awfully big prize, but in fact... Netflix's founders tried for years to improve Cinematch, with only incremental results, and they knew that a 10% bump would be a real challenge for even the most deft programmer. They also knew that as Reed Hastings, the chief of executive of Netflix, told me recently, getting to 10% would certainly be worth well in excess of $1 million to the company. The competition was announced in October 2006, and no one has won yet. Though 30,000 hackers worldwide are hard at work on the problem. Each day, teams submit their updated solutions to the Netflix Prize webpage, and Netflix instantly calculates how much better than Cinematch they are. There's even a live leaderboard ranking the top contestants. In March 2007, Batoni decided he wanted to give it a crack, so he downloaded a huge set of data that Netflix put online, an enormous list showing how 480,189 of the company's customers rated 17,770 Netflix movies. When Netflix customers log into their accounts, they can rate any movie from 1 to 5 stars. To help teach the Netflix system what their preferences are, the average customer has rated around 200 movies. So Netflix has a lot of information about what its customers like and don't like. So Batoni began looking for patterns that would predict customer behavior, specifically an algorithm that would guess correctly the number of stars a given user would apply to a given movie. A year and a half later, Batoni is still going often spending 20 hours a week working on it in his home office. His two children, 12 and 13 years old, sometimes sit and brainstorm with him. They're very good with mathematics and algebra, he told me, and they think of interesting questions about your movie-watching behavior. For example, one day the kids wondered about sequels. Would a Netflix user who liked the first two Matrix movies be just as likely to enjoy the third one, even though it was widely considered to be pretty dreadful? Each time he or his kids think of a new approach, Batoni writes a computer program to test it. 
Each new algorithm takes on average three or four hours to churn through the data of the family's quad-core gateway computer. But Tony's results have gradually improved. When I last spoke to him, he was at number eight on the leaderboard. His program was 8.8% better than Cinematch. The top team was at 9.44%. Well, it's pretty close. He thought he was pretty close to getting to victory, but his progress had slowed to a crawl. The more Batoni improved upon Netflix, the harder it became to move his number forward. This wasn't just his problem. The other competitors say that their progress is stalling too, as they edge towards 10%. Why? Batoni says it's partly because of Napoleon Dynamite, an indie comedy from 2004 that achieved cult status and went on to become extremely popular on Netflix. It is, Batoni and others have discovered, maddeningly hard to determine how much people will like it. When Batoni runs his algorithms on regular hits like Lethal Weapon or Miscongeniality and tries to predict how any given Netflix user will rate them, he's usually within eight-tenths of a star. But with films like Napoleon Dynamite, he's off by an average of 1.2 stars. The reason is that Napoleon Dynamite is very weird and very polarizing. It contains a lot of arch-ironic humor, including a famously kooky dance performed by the titular teenage character to help his hapless friend win a student council election. It's a type of quirky entertainment that tends to be either loved or despised. The movie has been rated more than 2 million times, and the ratings are disproportionately 1 or 5 stars. Worse, close friends who normally share similar film aesthetics often heatedly disagree about whether Napoleon Dynamite is a masterpiece or an annoying bit of hipster self-indulgence. When Batani saw the movie himself, they argued for hours over it with a group of friends. Should have left that in. Half of them loved it and half of them hated it, he told me. And they couldn't really say why. It's just a difficult movie. Mathematically speaking, Napoleon Dynamite is a very significant problem for the Netflix prize. Amazingly, he's deduced that his single movie is causing 15% of his remaining error rate. Or to put it another way, if you could anticipate whether you'd like it or not, this feat alone would bring him 15% of the way to winning the $1 million prize. While it's the worst corporate, it's not the only troublemaker. A small subset of other titles have caused almost as much bedevilment among the Netflix prize competitors. When Batoni showed me a list of his 25 most difficult to predict movies, I noticed they were all similar in some way to Napoleon Dynamite. Culturally or politically polarizing and hard to classify, including I Heart Huckabees, that's another kind of hipster movie, Lost in Translation, again, very hipster, Fahrenheit 9-11, more of a doco, and it's, yeah, that's one guy who is quite polarizing, old Michael Moore, The Life Aquatic with Steve Zizou, there's a lot of um, Bill Murray movies there, there's two in a row, uh, well, movie-wise, Kill Bill Volume 1 and Sideways, that surprises me about Kill Bill, I thought everyone loved that. So this is the question that gently haunts the Netflix competition as well as the recommendation engines used by other online stores like Amazon and iTunes. Just how predictable is human taste anyway? If we can't understand our own preferences, can computers really be any better at it? It used to be that if you wanted to buy a book, rent a movie or shop for music, you had to rely on flesh and blood judgment, yours or that of someone you trusted. You'd go to your local bookstore and look for a new stuff Or you might just wander the aisles in what librarians call a stack search to see if anything jumped out at you. You might check out newspaper reviews or consult your friends. If you're lucky, your local video store employed one of those cineasts who could size you up in a glance and suggest something suitable. The advent of online retailing completely upended this cultural and economic ecosystem. First of all, shopping over the web is not a social experience. There are no clever clerks to ask for advice. The death of clerks. 
What's more, because they have no real space constraints, online stores like Amazon or iTunes can stock millions of titles, making a stack search essentially impossible. This creates the classic problem of choice. How do you decide among an effectively infinite number of options? But websites have this significant advantage over brick and mortar stores. They can track everything their customers do. Each page you visit, every purchase you make, every item you rate, it's all recorded. In the early 90s, scientists working in the field of machine learning realized that this enormous trove of data could be used to analyze patterns in people's tastes. In 94, Patty Mays, an MIT professor, created one of the first recommendation engines, setting up a website where people listed songs and bands they liked. Her computer algorithm performed what's known as collaborative filtering. It would take a song you rated highly, find other people who also rated it highly, and then suggest you try a song that those people also liked. We had this realization that if you gathered together a really large group of people who liked thousands or millions, they could help one another find things because you can find patterns in what they like. It's not necessarily the one single smart critic that's going to find something for you, like go see this movie, go listen to this band. In one sense, collaborative filtering is less personalized than a store clerk. A clerk knows a lot about you, like your age, profession, what sort of things you enjoy. She can even read your current mood. Are you feeling lousy? Maybe it's not the day for apocalypse now. A collaborative filtering program, in contrast, knows very little about you, only what you bought at a website and whether you rated it highly or not. But the computer has numbers on its side. It may know only a little bit about you, but it knows a little bit about a huge number of other people. This lets it detect patterns we cannot often see on our own. For example, May's music recommendation system discovered that people who like classical music also like the Beatles. It's an epiphany that perhaps makes sense when you think about it for a second, but it isn't immediately obvious. Soon after May's work made its debut, online stores quickly understood the value of having a recommendation system, and today most websites selling entertainment products have one. Most of them use some variant of collaborative filtering, like Amazon's customers who bought this item also bought function. Some setups ask you to actively rate products as Netflix does. Not anymore. But others also rely on passive information. They keep track of your everyday behavior, look for clues to your preferences. For example, many music engines like the Genius feature on iTunes, Microsoft's MixView music recommender, I don't think that's still around, or the Audio Scrubbler at Last FM. Is that still going? I think Spotify killed all of those. They register every time you listen to a song on your computer. And a few rare services actually pay people to evaluate products. Pandora streaming service, what happened to them? has 50 employees who listen to songs and tag them with descriptors. Upbeat, minor key, prominent vocal harmonies. See, now I want that job. I wouldn't mind having it if they did it for movies, but that would also be fun uh, to do for a, say, Spotify type thing. I wonder if they still have them. It's kind of hard. I don't know where to start researching about follow-up to this article. Netflix came late to the party. The company opened in 1997. The first three years, it offered no recommendations. This wasn't such a big problem when Netflix stocked only a 1,000 titles. Customers could sift through those pretty quickly. But Netflix grew, and today it stocks more than 100,000 movies. I think that once you get beyond a 1,000 choices, a recommendation system becomes critical, the CEO told me. People have limited cognitive time they want to spend on picking a movie. Cinematch was introduced in 2000, but the first version worked poorly, a mix of insightful and boneheaded recommendations, according to Hastings. His programmers slowly began improving. They could tell how much better they were getting by trying to replicate how a customer rated movies in the past. They took the customer's ratings from, say, 2001 and used them to predict their rating for 2002. Because Netflix actually had those later ratings, it could discern what a perfect prediction would look like. Soon, 
Cinematch reached the point where it could tease out some fairly nuanced connections. For example, it found that people who enjoy The Patriot also tend to like Pearl Harbor, which you'd expect, since they're both history, war, action movies. But it also discovered that they like the heartstring-tugging drama Pay It Forward and the sci-fi movie I, Robot. Cinematch has, in fact, become a video store roboclark. Its suggestions now drive a surprising 60% of Netflix's rentals. It also often steers a customer's attention away from big grossing hits towards smaller independent movies. Well, that's good. Hasn't really worked out that way, like in the long run. There's a lot less of those around now. Uh, Traditional video stalls depend on hits. Just out of the theatre, blockbusters account for 80% of what they rent. At Netflix, by contrast, 70% is from the backlist. Older movies, small independent ones. A good recommendation system, in other words, does not merely help people find new stuff. As Netflix has discovered, it spurs them to consume more stuff. For Netflix, this is doubly important. Customers pay a flat monthly rate, generally $16.99. Well, that dropped. Uh, to check out as many movies as they want. But I think I pay about the same AU in Australia for my monthly subscription. The problem with this business model is that new members often have a couple of dozen movies in mind that they want to see. But after that, they're not sure what to check out next and their requests slow. And a customer paying $17 a month for only one movie every month or two is at risk of cancelling his subscription. The plan makes financial sense from a user's point of view only if you rent a lot of movies. My wife and I quit Netflix for precisely this reason. Oh, I bet you're back on it now. Every time Hastings increases the quality of Cinematch, even slightly, it keeps his customers active. Well, that makes sense. This is a longer article than I anticipated, but we'll get there. By 2006... Their improving performance had plateaued. Netflix's programmers couldn't go any further on their own. They suspected there was a big breakthrough out there. Science of Recommendation Systems was booming, and computer scientists were publishing hundreds of papers each year on the subject. At a staff meeting, Hastings suggested a radical idea. Why not have a public contest? Netflix's recommendation system was powered by the wisdom of crowds. Now it would tap the wisdom of crowds to get better too. Hastings hoped that the contest has galvanized nerds around the world. The top 10 list for the Netflix prize currently includes a group of programmers in Austria, a trained psychologist and web consultant in Britain who uses his teenage daughter to perform his calculus, that's number 9, a lone PhD candidate in Boston who calls himself My Brain and His Chain, it's a reference to a Benfold song apparently, Pragmatic Theory, two French-Canadian guys, nearly every team is working on the prize in its spare time. In October, when I dropped by the house of Martin Schaber, 32-year-old member of the Pragmatic Theory duo, it was only 8.30 at night, but we had to whisper. His four children, including a two-month-old baby, had just gone to bed. In his small dining room, a laptop sat open next to children's books, like Les Robots, a Star Wars picture book in French. This is where I do everything. After the kids are asleep, I pack the lunch for school, I come down at 9 in the evening and work until 11 or 12. It's very exciting in the beginning, he laughed. It still is, but with the baby now, going to bed at midnight... It's not a good idea. No, you don't go to bed much at all. Pragmatic theory formed last spring, when Chabert's longtime friend Martin Piot, a 43-year-old electrical and computer engineer, heard about the prize. Like many of the amateurs trying to win the $1 million, they had no relevant expertise. Absolutely no background in statistics that would be useful, he told me ruefully. Two guys, absolutely no clue. They soon discovered that the Netflix competition is a fairly collegial affair. The company hosts a discussion board, and competitors help each other out, discussing algorithms, publicly brainstorming, and uh, sometimes even posting reams of computer code for anyone to use. 
When someone makes a breakthrough, pretty soon every other team is aware of it and starts using it too. Well, that doesn't seem very competitive. Pio and Chabert soon learned the major mathematical tricks that had propelled the leading teams into the top 10. The first major breakthrough came less than a month into the competition. A team named Simon Funk vaulted from nowhere into number 4, improving upon Cinematch by 3.88%. Its secret was a mathematical technique called singular value decomposition. It isn't new. Mathematicians have used it for years to make sense of prodigious chunks of information, but Netflix never thought to try it on movies. It works by uncovering factors that Netflix customers like or don't like. Say, for example, that Sleepless in Seattle has been rated by 200,000 Netflix users. In one sense, there's just a huge list of numbers. User number 452 gave it two stars. Number 985 gave it five stars, and so on. But you could also think of those ratings as individual reactions to various aspects of the movie. It's a chick flick, a comedy, a star vehicle for Tom Hanks. Each customer is reacting to how much or how little he or she likes chick flicks, comedies, and Tom Hanks. Singular value decomposition takes the mass of Netflix data, uh, nearly 18,000 movies at that point, and ratings by 500,000 users, and automatically sorts the films. The programmers do not actively tell the computer what to look for. They just run the algorithm until it groups together movies that share qualities with predictive values. You've already lost me a bit. Sometimes when you look at the clusters of movies, you can deduce the connections. You showed me one list, with Chabert, at the top was Sleepless in Seattle, Still Magnolias and Pretty Woman, while at the bottom were Star Trek movies. Clearly, the computer recognised some factor that suggests that someone who likes the romantic aspects of the top three and dislikes Star Trek. Chabert showed me another cluster, this time DVD collections of the TV show Friends, all clustered at the top, while action movies like Reindeer Games and Hannibal clustered at the bottom. Most likely the computer had selected for comic content here. Other lists appeared to group movies based on whether they lean strongly to the ideological right or left. As programmers extract more and more values, it becomes possible to draw exceedingly sophisticated correlations among movies and hence to offer incredibly nuanced recommendations. We're teasing out very subtle human behaviours, says Chris, a scientist with AT&T. His three-person team held the number one position for more than a year. They rely on singular value decomposition. You can find things like people who like action movies, but only if there's a lot of explosions, and not if there's a lot of blood. Or maybe they don't like profanity, he told me when we spoke recently. Or it's like, I like action movies, but not if they have Keanu Reeves, and not if there's a bus involved. Uh, most of the leading teams competing for the Netflix prize now use the same algorithm. Uh, indeed, given how quickly word of new breakthroughs spreads, virtually every team in the top 10 makes use of similar mathematical ploys. The only thing that they sep- that separates their scores is how skillfully they tweak it. The Netflix prize has come to resemble a drag race in which everyone drives the same car with only a few tiny modifications to the fuel injection. Yet those tweaks are crucial. These days, the competitors spend much of their time thinking deeply about the maths and psychology. For example, the teams are grappling with the problem that over time people can change how sternly or leniently they rate movies. Psychological studies show that if you ask someone to rate a movie, then a month later ask him to do so, the rating varies by 0.4 stars. The question is, why? Did you remember it differently? Did you see something in between? Did Did something change in your life that made you rethink it? Some teams deal with this by programming the computers to gradually discount older rating. Another common problem is identifying overly punitive raters. If you're a really harsh critic, and a much more easygoing one, your two-star rating may be equal to my four-star rating. To compensate, an algorithm might try to detect when a Netflix customer tends to hand out only one and two-star ratings, a sign of a strict, pursed-lipped customer, and artificially boost his ratings by half a star. 
Then there's a problem with movie raiders who simply aren't consistent. They might be even-handed most of the time, but if they log into Netflix when they're in a particularly bad mood, they might impulsively decide to rate a couple of dozen movies harshly. TV shows, which are hot commodities on Netflix, present another issue. They respond to series much differently than they do to movies. They love the first two seasons of The Wire, but they might start getting bored during the third and keep on watching for a while, then stop abruptly. So when should Cinematch stop recommending The Wire? When do you tell someone to give up on a TV show? Interesting that competitors do not know anything about the demographics. The teams sometimes argue on the discussion board about whether their predictions would be better if they knew that customer 46 is a 23-year-old woman in Arizona. Yet most of the leading teams say personal information is not very useful because it's too crude. As one team pointed out, there's the fact that I am a 40-year-old West Village resident is not very predictive. There's little reason to think that other 40-year-old men on my block enjoy the same movies I do. In contrast, the Netflix data are much more rich in meaning. When I tell the Netflix that I think Woody Allen's black comedy Matchpoint deserves three stars, but the Josh Whedon sci-fi film Serenity is a five-star masterpiece, this reveals quite a lot about my taste. Indeed, Reed Hastings told me that even though Netflix has a good deal of demographic information, the company does not use it to generate movie recommendations. Using merely knowing where people are isn't very predictive of their movie tastes. As the team have grown better at predicting preferences, the more incomprehensible their computer programs have become, even to their creators. Each team has lined up a gantlet of scores of algorithms, each one analysing different correlations. The upshot is that while teams are producing ever more accurate recommendations, they cannot precisely explain how they're doing this. Chris admits his team's program has become a black box. Internal logic unknowable. Well, it's very sci-fi. There's a sort of unsettling alien quality to their computer's results. When the team examines the ways that singular value decomposition is slotting movies into categories, sometimes it makes sense, as when computers highlight what appears to be some essence of nerdiness in a bunch of sci-fi movies. But many categorizations are now so obscure that they cannot see the reasoning behind them. Possibly the algorithms are finding connections so deep and subconscious that customers themselves wouldn't recognize them. At one time, Shaber shows me a list of movies that his algorithm discovered share some ineffable similarity. It includes a historical movie, Joan of Arc, a wrestling video, SummerSlam 2004, the comedy It Had to Be You, and a version of Charles Dickens' Bleak House. For the life of me, I can't figure out what possible connection they have, but Shaber assures me that this singular value score is much higher than any cinema, so it must be doing something right. They're able to tease out all of these things that we never, ever would think of ourselves. The machine may be understanding something about us that we do not understand ourselves, yet it's clear that something is still missing. Volinsky's momentum has slowed down, as is everyone else's. There's some X factor in human judgment that the current bunch of algorithms isn't capturing, and the problem looms large. Petoni is currently at 8.8%. He says that a small group of mainly independent movies represents more than half of the remaining errors in the way of winning the prize. Most teams suspect that continuing to tweak algorithms won't be enough to get to 10%. They need another breakthrough. This last half percent is the Mount Everest, Valinsky said. It's going to take one of those aha moments. Some computer scientists think the Napoleon Dynamite problem exposes a serious weakness of computers. They cannot anticipate the eccentric ways that real people actually decide to take a chance on a movie. The Cinematch system, like any recommendation engine, assumes your taste is static and unchanging. The computer looks at all the movies you rated in the past, finds a trend, and uses that to guide you. But the reality is our cultural tastes evolve. They change in part because we interact with others, 
You hear friends gushing about Madman. So eventually, even though you've never had any interest in early 60s America, you give it a try. Or you go into the video store and run into a particularly charismatic clerk who persuades you that you really have to give The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou a chance. As Gavin Potter, a Netflix prize competitor who lives in Britain and is currently in ninth place, pointed out to me, a computer recommendation system seeks to find the most common thread in millions of people's recommendations. So, it inherently avoids extremes. Video store clerks, on the other hand, are influenced by their own idiosyncrasies. Even if they're considering your taste to make a suitable recommendation, they can't help relying on their own sense of what's good and bad. They'll make more mistakes than the computers, but they're also more likely to have flashes of inspiration, like pointing you to Napoleon Dynamite at just the right moment. If you use a computerized system based on ratings, you tend to get very relevant but safe answers. If you go with a movie store clerk, you'll get more unpredictable but potentially more exciting recommendations. Another critic of computer recommendations is Patty Mays, the MIT professor. He notes there's something slightly antisocial, narrow-minded about hyper-personalized recommendation systems. Sure, it's good to have a computer, find more of what you already like, but culture isn't experienced in solitude. We also consume shows and movies and music as a way of participating in society. That social need can override the question of whether or not we'll like the movies. You don't want to see a movie just because you think it's going to be good. It's also because everyone at school or work is going to be talking about it, and you want to be able to talk about it too. She told me that a while ago she rented Sex in the City. She suspected she wouldn't really like the show, but everyone else was constantly talking about it, and I had to know what they were talking about. So even though I would have been embarrassed if Netflix suggested it to me, I'm glad I saw it, because now I get it. I know all the in-jokes. May suspects that in the future, computer-based reasoning will become less important for online retailers than social networking tools that tap into the social zeitgeist. So let customers see, in Facebook fashion, for example, what their close friends are watching and buying. Potter has an even more intriguing idea. He says that he thinks that a recommendation system could predict cultural microtrends by monitoring news events. His research has found, for example, that people rent more movies about Wall Street when the stock market drops. In the world of music, there are already several innovative recommendation systems that try to analyse buzz. By monitoring blogs for repeated mentions of up-and-coming bands, by sifting through millions of people's playlists to see if a new band is suddenly getting a lot of attention. Of course, for a company like Netflix, there's a downside to pushing exciting but risky movie recommendations. If it tries to stretch your taste by recommending more daring movies, it also risks annoying customers. A bad movie recommendation can waste an evening. Is there any way to find a golden mean? When I put this question to Reed, the Netflix CEO, I don't know if he still is, he told me there won't be any simple answer. But, he says, Maze is right too, and that social networking tools will become more useful. Netflix already has one, in fact, an application that lets users see what their family and peers are renting. But he admits that it hasn't been as valuable as computerized intelligence. Only a very small percentage of rentals are driven by what friends have chosen. Hastings is even considering hiring cinephiles to watch all 100,000 movies in the Netflix library and write up by hand pages of objectives describing each movie, a cloud of tags that would offer a subjective view of what makes films similar or dissimilar. It might imbue Cinematch with more unpredictable human-like intelligence. Humans are very quirky and individualistic and wonderfully idiosyncratic, Hastings says. And while I love that about humans, it's really making it hard to figure out what they like. <laughs> so thanks for that, Clive Thompson. It was an interesting read. It was a bit long, but, you know, it had to be to get all the information. There. I mean, that shows maybe, um, I don't know if that's a, a time thing. Like, back then they wrote decent long-form articles. Now it's less easy to find ones, so I just don't come across them as often. 
maybe it's a New York Times thing, but that was good. I do want to look up Reed Hastings and see if he's still in charge. CEO of Netflix, he sure is, so good for him. His net worth is $3.8 billion, so he's still all right. Obviously, they worked out that algorithm. Did the competition ever get solved or won? Right, so there's a Wikipedia and like anyone win. Oh, wait, wait, wait. On September 21st, 2009. So again, almost a year after that article was written, the grand prize of US $1 million was given to the Bellcore Pragmatic Chaos Team, ah, which bested Netflix's own algorithm for predicting ratings by 10.06%. So there you go. A lot more to that. And I might finish that up on the next episode or oh, you'll just go and look it up if you're really interested now i think that'll have to be it because i've got to go and do things it's been fun it's opened up a whole new world of statistics that i had no idea was interesting and more the psychological side of it i find fascinating like i love the idea that they were going to hire a bunch of people i think they said i didn't say how many but a whole bunch of people to just watch a hundred thousand movies and then write objectives to describe them like can you think of a better job? If you can, get back to me, because I can't. Right, but for now, that's it. Love yous all. Have a week. <laughs>